Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everybody welcome back to podside uh this is pete i'm here with carlo and uh actually we have a special guest for you we have uh the author of quantum magician and other sundries derek coonskin which i almost got right yes no you you did awesome well welcome to the show derek how are you good good thank you so much for having me oh it's a it's a pleasure so i it recently a lot of the heavy lifting has been done by by Carlo in in locating guests. I need to call that out. But how did you two meet? Well, we're both members of the Science Fiction Writers of America, and one of the things that I love about Sifwa is that you know uh, year after year they bring bunches of people together for their conferences, and those are learning conferences, and it's a celebration of science fiction and fantasy. Um, and at the same time, I'm pretty sure that we've also talked online because there's a massive, uh, forum where people can talk to each other and give each other advice and cheer each other on and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure that Carlo and I had met in both places and, um, yeah, we, I think we'd seen each other at different conferences after that. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, exactly right. I believe, um, we met, was it the 2018 Nebulas, uh, that was in Pittsburgh? Maybe. Maybe, but I'm pretty sure that like like it happens with other people, we probably talked online at first. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. what I find bizarre is we end up talking online. You see the person's little picture icon. And then when you see them in real, real life, you're like, I know that guy, but this is the first time in the city. How could I possibly know somebody? And it happens so often. <laughs> yes. So um, – I, as as is my want, I am going to kick this off by going way off topic because this is interesting to me. Um, you both um, mm-hmm. are are very active, as far as I can tell, in the organization surrounding writing and science fiction. How much of that is for internal purposes and how much of it is for external? I mean, in other words, are you trying to get ideas and encouragement or are you, are you marketing or, or what's happening here? I can take a swing at this first. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Ontario, Canada, and there were no other writers around. I mean, there were some people who like science fiction, but I mean, as you, you know, in a city of like 15,000 people, uh, the sci-fi nerds, we did not number very much. And so I always felt that like I was lacking something and I didn't know what that was for quite a long time. And it was only when I was around 35 that I encountered fandom and, you know, other science fiction and fantasy writers and readers. And and um, so for me, I, I became very active in, in CIFWA uh, for a number of years as a volunteer just to, you know, have a social group of people who like the same stuff as I do, which is, you know, like I said, few and far between. And I do the same thing in Ottawa. I live in Ottawa, Canada now. And, you know, when I got here, there there was a bit of fandom, but like not as much as I would have hoped. And so I've spent the last eight eight years or so, or even a decade, uh, just trying to build up fandom, finding writers and introducing them to other people and uh, just making sure that everybody knows everybody else so that when I go out with friends, it's now almost like a literary event, which is really cool. I'm kind of like building the city I want to live in. That is cool. That's, <laughs> what, what do you think, Car- Carlo? Is that, is, that, uh, is that your experience or what? How, I mean, how do you come by this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, that Derek and I probably share some of the the initial uh, the initial things, you know, like the initial uh, incentive, uh, inspirations, what have you, um, and and you know, like I've we've talked somewhat at length, you know, in the, in the crap book episodes about you know, like reading stuff, but you know, you don't really know anyone, so you're just sort of being a fan. 
And I, you know, like I started a little later than Derek, like around, you know, when I actually, when I started writing was probably like, yeah, like around the age 35 or 36. And even then it was for trying to write for like, uh, some sort of a gaming supplements and stuff like that. But it wasn't, I didn't feel like that was connected to say the books I was reading, uh, you know, and so it, when I got here, uh, you know, one of the first things I noticed because uh, I just happened to drive by the the place and there's a little paper sign out the window was the um, in the window about the Baltimore Science Fiction Society. I was like, oh, let me check that out. And I just lucked out. Like I, I got someone uh, to greet me there and wel- give me a welcoming feeling. And from there. I realized that they had a writing group and, you know, I hadn't really ever tried writing like for actual other people to read or finish a story. So I tried my hand at that, uh, wrote a evocative first draft of a story, took it there and people were wowed by it. And I was like, oh, I I could probably do this. It's sort of a weird thing. And, And ever since that, then I feel like I've, I've wanted to be the person that welcomed me into the Baltimore Science Fiction Society and that got me on track to write something. You know, it's so funny doing these interviews because on a, on a fundamental level, the question I'm asking over and over, it's like, you guys are a bunch of bats. And I'm like, what's it like to see with your voice? And obviously, <laughs> I'm never going to internalize it, but it's, it's, it's endlessly fascinating to me. And thanks for talking about it. I, I, it, it goes deep though, right? Because to be a writer, like to want to be a writer is a bit of a dream, right? And you want to get there, but I felt that everything before I was, you know, let's say 20 or even 30 was kind of fumbling in the dark. Like there was nobody to tell me, oh, this is what an agent does. This is what an editor does. Uh, you know, this is what story structure looks like. This is how you do the first act, you know? Don't tell the plan when they're making the plan. You know, all the little dumb stuff that, you know, you can pick up while you're at a conference. Um, and and so I feel like I, I try and live, as I said, uh, life without regrets. But, um, you know, some of the stuff that I guess is out of my control would have been I would have learned to have loved. Uh, I would have loved to have learned faster than I did in my life. And I can't go back and do that now, but I can help other people learn faster. Yeah, I I, th- I think that's a statement you can apply to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I okay. Yeah. Um, uh, Carlo, do you have anything you want to pursue along this side side, or do you want to jump into the book? No, I mean, uh, I was just going to say that. Yeah, I think that 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 is perfect, and I think it encapsulates like the the general feeling of you know people didn't ha- didn't have to have it sort of as difficult as I did, and. Let me see how I can help doing that. Yeah, standing on the shoulders of giants. That makes sense to me. Yep. Uh, so in in reading the first book in this series, uh, my, my interest and excitement in it was like an asymptote. Like shooting up the farther in the, I, I got. Uh, when I initially started reading... I had an insight early on as to what the puppets were, and I didn't totally understand it. And I'm like, uh, uh, space opera with slaves, my stomach hurts. But as I started going through your book, one of the things I noticed is, um, well, I, I guess my, I, I should phrase this as a question is instead of a weird speech from me, um, do you have a science background or is it that you're well-read in science fiction? Because it, we talk about quantum entanglement here. We talk about brain structure. We talk about uh, uh, wormholes. We talk like there are so many pieces of the puzzle. I mean, we, we talk about animal husbandry. It's, it's all over the map. It's really, really rich. And you weave it together. It's really cool. And I should let you answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> You're very kind. Um, what the, the the science part of the book is, I'm a bit of a sense of wonder junkie. So I find the universe, every part of it, endlessly fascinating. 
And some of my favorite books are books that, you know, take me places I never would have imagined what it would be like. Um, you know, like in Stephen Baxter's Ring, you go across the surface of the sun with an AI who's experiencing it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do have a science background. I, I studied uh, molecular biology and I got my master's degree. Um, but that only covers biology and evolution. And um, I kept on reading popularized physics quite a bit um, and popularized evolution stuff. Uh, you know, Richard Dawkins is great for explaining how evolution works and how we should think about it. Um, but yeah, I, I did a, a, an article for Analog Magazine called The Science in the Quantum Magician. And I was surprised to find that about 60% of it was, was biology rather than physics because the, the part I have to work at is the physics part. So I guess that felt like it was a bigger piece when I was building it. But th thank you for appreciating it, by the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I love space opera, just fact. But one of the things about space opera is usually it's like you pick up the 600-page book and you open the first page and it's like, this is about chemistry or whatever the particular science is. And that's that's what you're going to get for the next, you know, however many hundred pages. And I I thought it was pretty interesting that you did try and play for with ideas that were outside of your garden. Um, it, how much of that was like conscious? I need to make this a rich world. And how much of it was I have this world in mind, so, so I'd better go figure out how this piece works. So. Before I wrote The Quantum Magician, I read um, Vacuum Diagrams by Stephen Baxter and I read Galactic North by Alastair Reynolds. Both of those are collections of short stories by authors who do hard science fiction and space opera. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, sh you know, shocked and delighted me was that both of them basically had most of their short stories set in the same universe. And up until that point, I had been creating a new universe for every single story I got published. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a lot of work. And it, after reading those two collections, I thought, what if I just took my my various pieces of short fiction and said, a priori, they're all in the same universe. What would that look like? And so all of a sudden, you know, the 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 homo Eridanus stills who lives under, you know, that was my first Asimov story. Um, the, uh, the time gates and the, uh, the aliens that live around it were in an, uh, another Asimov story. And, you know, those, those skates that live around the pulsars there, that was in another story. The, the Homo Quantus came from the idea that I was fascinated by one of Stephen Baxter's short stories where he had like a, somebody who had quantum perceptions and I liked the story, but I didn't feel it went deep enough for what, like, I was just so curious. And so. Um, is is this the one with the plants that grow fractally? Uh, with the pharaohs? Because honestly, when I was reading through this, I was thinking about a particular Stephen Baxter short story. So like this is electric. Be. It might be because there are I, I know the story you're talking about. I don't have the the um, yeah, it's like fractal flowers or something. No, it was it, it, it actually it's the title story. It's called Vacuum Diagrams. It's a short one. And it doesn't delve into the idea very much. And I felt like, what would it take to give somebody quantum perceptions? And I went from there and did all of the physics and biology backwards. But basically, the reason I have this stuff in it and why it changes, you know, scientific direction so much is because um, while I'm writing, I'm constantly curious as to what the science is behind this stuff. And so, you know, I'll throw snippets in here and there just to keep myself interested, which is, you know a lot of fun for me. And, you know, it's great when it connects with a reader who, who likes a bit of that sense of wonder stuff too. Um, I, I, I certainly, uh, well, I, I want to make clear that, uh, the people listening to us go buy the book. I'm trying not to spoil things. So, uh, <laughs> but well, I, I, I think I had come up with, uh, a, a sort of a tagline for it. Um, oh, I would love to hear. Yeah. This is basically, uh, Red seas under red skies with uh, basically a in space opera. You know, it's instead of Locke Lamora and uh, his buddy doing a heist out in some fantasy world, it's out in space. So hmm. go check it out. I, I uh, 
in in 2015, I met the person who would later become my agent, and I told her about this this uh, this this novel, and I said it's it's uh, Ocean's Eleven meets Guardians of the Galaxy, and then she went and sold it to a publisher by saying it was Ocean's Eleven in space, and uh, <laughs> and and. and and I think in French, in the the French translation, it says it's Peter Watts on laughing gas. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's that's an interesting image, <laughs> given given the Peter Watts episode that <laughs> that was given here. Um, so uh, I did want to ask you because you you said that um, you had written in Analog uh, the the article about the science of mm -hmm. the quantum magician. If I remember correctly, this was sold or initially printed to uh, uh, in analog. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, it was. So analog has this tradition of being the very last of the magazines that still does serialized novels. And um, so they do about one a year. And uh, I had previously been published by Trevor. And, uh, you know, when it, it, with a story that was set in the same universe and and when I um, had this done, I said, you know, hey, Trevor, are you interested in seeing? And, uh, you know, so we eventually, uh, you know, exchanged emails about it and, and he picked it up. And so, yeah, it, it was published first in uh, it was actually published first in Chinese because they were faster at publishing. But hmm. it was also serialized in China before it was even out in analog. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Our publishing is so slow that you can still get translations done if you're in a, a publishing house in a hurry and uh, they'll they'll beat it in the foreign market. Interesting. That's that fascinating. wild. Yeah. So and I guess my question is, so this is the novel, if you buy it, is as it appeared in analog or did you add some... Uh, so when I, it was about a hundred thousand words when I gave it to Trevor and also rebellion by then had already bought it. And then Trevor, while he was doing the edit said, I'd like to see more of the big bad. And I said, okay. And he's like, so add some words and I'll pay for them. And I said, okay, that sounds great. So <laughs> I, I ended up writing about another 6,000 words, which was almost all the scarecrow stuff. Like there was the scarecrow in there before, but Trevor wanted to see more of him. So, or it. So yeah, that that's and and then the rebellion editor saw the edit, saw the extra stuff, and said, "Yes, let's keep this." So they're they're pretty much the same. In fact, because uh, analog ends up in libraries, we took out some of the English swearing or changed it to Spanish or uh, Arabic or uh, Chinese swearing. Hmm. That's or French, obviously. Yes, I did want to ask you. Oh, go ahead, Pete. I, I said I love that. It was it was my my smallest contribution to the pod. Please keep going. <laughs> so, um, I guess my other question would be: Okay, so you you asked uh, or you answered, um, you know, what your your scientific field is, uh, or the one that you studied, which is molecular biology. Is that right? Yep. So, how did you land on quantum? How do you mean this this book? I mean, uh, why why quantum in this book? Let's put it quantum that way. Quantum physics, I think you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had actually wanted to go into physics first. I think uh, – so if we go all the way back, I mean, when I was 10 years old, I read my first X-Men comic. And by the time I was 11 or 12, I was pretty sure I didn't understand what genetics was, but I wanted to go into it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the idea of being a professor seemed really cool. And then sometime in high school, I started reading a lot of popular physics. Um, and I, I, I actually went to um, university. My first year was in physics, but I flunked out of calculus. Um, I, I couldn't, I didn't do enough homework for one thing, but I also, you know, it, it just, it, I wasn't there brain wise. And um, so, so I switched to biology, which was, like I said, my first love anyway. And uh, it was uh, it was wonderful. And so the, but the thing is, I never stopped loving all of the physics side. And so I, I like if you look at my bookshelf, it's full to overflowing with popular science books um, mm -hmm. that are mostly physics and, you know, the occasional biology one. So it, it's natural that that curiosity then translated into the page. So and, and let me ask you this. Um... Because I, I noticed two specific names popped out at me when I read the, <laughs> the main character's name. So we have Belisarius, who mm -hmm. I think is a Byzantine general, right? Yes, he was. 
Is this who it's na- who he's named after? No, no, oh, okay, no. So when I was writing it, my son said, "Could I be in it?" And I said, "No, because what if I have to do something bad to the character?" He's like, "I don't care." And I'm like, "Well, what if I have to kill the character?" And he's like, "I don't care." And I said, "Well, I do. If you want, I can name him after your grandfather." Um, and his his grandfather's name is Belisario Arjona uh, oh. because my son is half Colombian. Okay. So I just anglicized the Belisario and. Mm-hmm. You know, right. there we go. Yeah. That's, that's I, where I got my, the character name. Yeah. My, my next question was going to be if you're a big Ricardo Arjona fan. So. <laughs> my, my ex-wife uh, quite liked Ricardo Arjona. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. So I want to be careful because I don't want to do spoilers for the audience, but there is a question that's been bugging me. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a race uh, within or a... Well, I mean, humanity is divided like dogs. There's, there's, there's clear, there's some clear subspecies going on here. Mm-hmm. But um, puppets are a species that need to be able to have pheromonal contact with another, the Newman. And um, this is probably a reflection of who I am, and I'm ashamed of it. But like, why didn't they make sort of the equivalent of Newman real dolls? Like that smelled right. Yeah, no, the, you're you're on it. Um, so first of all, whenever I start a conversation about the puppets, I have to say I'm so so sorry for the puppets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the next thing I'll say is so the 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 people that made them were looking for a slave species that would serve them forever and would never rebel and would always love them. And so they were looking for an unbreakable biological lock. And if whatever they smelled like could be bottled, that would get in the way of an unbreakable lock. And so I said that um, the microbiomes, which is, you know, the bacteria living on your skin and stuff, Mm -hmm. um, they have special microbiomes that were specifically engineered to, you know, adjust these smells so that they smell different. And this is, this, it happens in nature now, right? I mean, the way we smell has a lot to do with the kind of bacteria we have on us. Um, and so these engineered microbiomes are part of the Newman and are, are part of the mechanism for control. And the reason why, you know, nobody can just distill out, um, you know, scent of Newman sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah. And you know that it, now that you say that, I do remember the work that the with the microbiomes that the doctor was doing to for the for the part that I'm spoiling stuff anyway. But you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I mean we can we can say a bit about the story. What what happens is there is um, a, a client nation that doesn't want to be under the thumb of their patron nation anymore. They've discovered a technology. Um, what happens is they've got to get that technology home. And the only way to get it there is to get across this wormhole that happens to be owned by the puppets. Um, and so they can't get through militarily. They've done all the analysis. And so they hire themselves a con man. And the con man, of course, um, has to figure out how to do a confidence scheme on a military galactic scale. And so... That's where, you know, the, 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 the plots and the twists are going to come in and what you're alluding to about, you know, part of the plan and what they're going to have to do with disguises and stuff. Yeah, that's, yeah, thank you. That's, that's much better than what I would have done because it's, it's really, um, the, the way the piece is set up, it's like, I feel like just describing the world feels like a spoiler. And I know that's not true, but it, it's, it's, that was, that was sort of the biggest investment for me is like, as I gained a better understanding of what each of these groups were and how they formed, um, I will say whoever colonized your world, huge asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I did want to I did want to ask you something because uh, when you were talking about sort of reading um, like your your uh, how you arrived you know with Belisarius and and so on, um, I I noticed that there's a couple of things there that I was like oh that sort of I I don't know if this is something that you were building towards consciously or whatever but I was like thinking about I thought immediately that like the the homo quantum is basically like the homo superior of x-men speaking of you know reading x-men 
Mm -hmm. uh, comics and stuff like that. And so, you know, you have that with like a bit of a, a Dune Mentat, uh, spin to it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in this, you have a lot of, uh, I noticed that you, you take some time to explain how sort of Belisarius's, um, biological systems work, uh, you know, like how he can increase like, uh, electrical activity in certain parts of his brain to therefore gain enough processing power, if you will. Um, and I, I immediately thought to myself, so, you know, when you were talking about your, your inspirations or how you got here, I was thinking, so is Bilsarius like a sort of a melding of your first scientific love and your current, uh, studies? So you have sort of physics melded with biology here. I'd never thought of it that way. That's a really neat uh, way of looking at it. I obviously read Dune. I was in university when I read it. And I, I you, you know, like everybody on their first read of it, I think we're kind of swept away and it's it's pretty impressive. Um, but it was far enough away from, you know, the, the creation time that it was, it was, you know, going back to sort of Tolkien's idea of, you know, all the ideas you have just kind of settle at the bottom of your brain and just compost there and then different mm -hmm. things grow. You don't know where things come from, but there, there are definitely elements of, of the mentat. I, I, I've always been fascinated by what would happen when we have more brains and, you know, that happens in a few places. You've got your, you know, your Reed Richards, your professor X, you've got your, your mentats, you've got other things in, in science fiction where, um, what will we become when we have more brains? Like, how does it change us? Because evolutionarily, um, yes, there's a lot of advantages we as a species seem to have, but, you know, in theory, you know, intelligence, you could, you could lose it in evolution the way you lose wings or you lose flippers or whatever. I mean, over, so, so I mean, getting at the nature of what does intelligence do for us and how does it impact the way we, we we work together is something that I find endlessly fascinating. And I'm working on the third and fourth books right now of the series. And um, I think the fourth one's really going to be a, a, a bit of a deep dive for me philosophically into what are flavors of intelligence and what are levels of intelligence and what do they what do they do and 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 how do they interact with, you know, let's say information processing and computer science and other stuff is just I, that's that's basically what I've been doing in my nonfiction time for all of 2019 and a lot uh, of 2020, I, I guess. Yeah, I, I can see that. And and given given the present moment and sort of the climate, um, I'm I'm glad that you're talking about sort of different types of intelligences that aren't just the ones that you know sort of the logic bros are always throwing around. <laughs> you know the the raw yeah. the raw intelligence and the IQ level, and you're like, but. So, okay. So you're like a machine. <laughs> so you, you'd kick up, you'd, you'd, you'd grind up puppies just to get what you want. That doesn't mm. seem like very intelligent or e even something that we would want to reward as a society. You know, it's just sort of weird uh, psychotic breaks between, you know, like your emotions and, and sort of this raw logic. Um, I, I don't even know if we like when I look at a lot of consciousness research and a lot of intelligence research and even, you know, the stuff that, you know, building artificial intelligences is telling us a bit about what our own intelligence is like. And I mean, if you're at the point where if you build a Lego model of something and it tells you something about something real, it means you don't know a lot about something real. So I really feel that this this whole field is in its infancy. And so there's so much more that we don't know. Right, right. And I mean, I, I've also, um, I'm going to guess that you, you've read um, uh, Anne Leckie's uh, the, the Imperial Ratch story. Yes. Right? Yeah, I read the first one. It was great. And I, I don't know if you had the same takeaway I had when I read it, but you know, people were like going like, well, why, did, why does, you know, why does Breck have an emotions? Because, you know, it's basically a giant AI. Why would, why would they have AIs with emotions? And you're like, uh, because emotions help human beings make decisions. Mm -hmm. You need to have a computer to, like, if you want a computer to make choices, you have to give them something that prompts decision-making. 
and, and you know and, it, and it establishes values as a, as a base too right right um, I, which means and, that yeah you have to have a certain level of emotionality uh and you know to to perhaps murder the phrase emotional intelligence to then say maybe you don't have a fuzzy you have a very fuzzy logic behind it but you go well that makes me feel bad i'm not going to do that yeah and and i think so so what you're what we're talking about here is values but i mean one of the things that I found super interesting was to wonder about if we start genetically engineering ourselves, um, what like our neurology, we may not know enough about our own neurology to get it all right, like to make the instincts match with the bodies. And that was something I played with a lot in both Quantum Magician and Quantum Garden because, um, and, and even the AIs, right? I mean, you've got one AI who thinks he's the reincarnation of, of you know, the apostle St. <laughs> Matthew. Well, and there is another explanation, to be fair. <laughs> there, there are many explanations, but <laughs> I'm just pointing out that it, within the set of the intelligences we're talking about, um, you know, the idea that they would want to make, they would want to engineer all of the Homo Quantus to be so curious, like to just amp up that instinct. Um, and for the puppets to, you know, want this other stuff and just the, th you know, they didn't engineer the instincts of the, uh, of, of the mongrels. And so their instincts don't match what they see in the mirror, so to speak. And so they look at themselves and I mean, the sort of, you know, mate recognition software is completely off for them. They look at each other and they're hideous. And so, you know, the, the, the joke at one point in the book that, you know, uh, mongrel porn is just, you know, people wearing pants because, you know, they have two <laughs> legs. It's like, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I, I'm fascinated by the idea of instincts being the shortcut to make it so that the sort of, um, processing load on the brain is lower because you've got a few shortcuts in there. Um, and if those shortcuts are the right ones, you know, you, you have more kids and you, your kids survive longer and prosper more. Well, there's a real, uh, well, I mean, it's given your background, it's not a huge surprise, but there's a real recognition of, uh, the concept of a genetic trade-off in this novel. Like you can't just inject smarter into somebody's dna code and that's how it's going to go down uh the 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 alterations have consequences and some of them are unforeseen and so i sort of i i think i mentioned before the idea of dogs i humanity spread across this universe feels like like over here you've got some chihuahuas and over here you've got some some dobermans except it's to the point where they probably can't uh breed with one another no, no. In my mind, um, I, I, uh, I, I don't know that I've decided whether the Homo Quantus can breed on their own without help. The puppets need to be around Newman to breed. Um, and the mongrels need a whole lot of, you know, basically artificial insemination uh, help. Um, because the mongrels can't live under, let's say, 700 atmospheres of pressure. And humans obviously can't live near that pressure at all. So you can't even put them together in the same room without either one of them exploding or one of them smushing. Oh, I, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was religion. Um, you actually uh, wrote sections of at least two holy books within this series. And I mean, was that just a lark? Was that part of the world building? Because like I, like the, the, both made me laugh, frankly. <laughs> so I, the, the puppet Bible stuff was so much fun to write. Um, so much fun. Um, just because, I mean, the puppets, you know, they are all the, the ultimate unintended consequence of what you're trying to do with genetic engineering. And, you know, it completely backfired on the Newman. And just seeing, like, the Puppet Bible was a wonderful way to take a look at what their values and morals are and the way they look at the world and just how, you know, twisted by 90 degrees they are to everything we could think of as good and pure and nice and whatever. Um, and and if you're talking about St. Matthew for the other one, I... I um, Religion has always fascinated me. I'm an atheist myself, but I mean, I have two Catholic priest uncles and a Catholic nun aunt. So, I mean, I come from, you know, that culture on one side. Um, and, and just the, you know, 
and, and, and even when I went to Latin America and I lived there in, you know, a few different countries and, you know, just seeing the importance of religion in, in other places and, and how important it is to people and what it does for people. Um, and, and, and having been a biologist too, you know, at some point, I, I hope every biologist, you know, reads some of the, you know, great debates of, you know, creationism versus, uh, um, uh, evolution. And I mean, there's you, because what they do is they show you some of the questions humans need to answer for themselves and the different answers they can go to. And so I find religion endlessly fascinating because it's almost like a window into some of the sort of needs we have that we can fill in different ways. And one of them is religion. And, you know, you can have different kinds of religions that do the same thing. I was actually thinking about the the mongrel book, but you're right. You you did do three religions in here. Oh, I wasn't sure that the mongrel the the way of the mongrel I think of more as like uh, an ethos rather than a religion. Oh, and that's fair. For that's all fair. we know, they could be putting us on, and it might just be something they say to outsiders. <laughs> well, and the 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 puppet one is my favorite. It's like, you know, for, for, from the book of Paul, get me out of this goddamn cage. What did he mean by this? It's like, oh, wow. Uh, the book of the good boy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I've been going back to those because the, the third book um, will have puppets in it again. And uh, yeah, you can't go anywhere without their religion. Yeah. The, uh, um, the, well, I guess this isn't a huge surprise, but the main character occasionally appears to – well, this is presumptuous, but it feels like he, he sort of speaks with your voice from time to time. Like when they start having descriptions of the puppets, for example, mm -hmm. and you know people start having sort of the natural revulsion – he, you know, he he like he'll stop everybody in the room and it's like, hey, man, it's not their fault. They were made yeah. this way. I I think um, I got this from, you know, look, a Hollywood script doctor. I looked at a lot of his stuff and learned a lot of things from him. And and he said sometimes, like when you're talking about theme, you're you're really taking two conflicting moral systems and crashing them together. And whatever comes out in the book, like the two moral systems will argue throughout the story. And what comes out in the end as the climax and denouement is kind of, you know, what the author thinks of of all of this at the end. And so... Um, I, I think that, yes, Belisarius obviously is, you know, there's a lot of me in Belisarius, um, because he's the straight guy. He's not funny at all. And that's, that's me. Um, but the, <laughs> the, the thing is, I think too, he, he draws lines between what people can control about themselves and what people can't control about themselves. And, and I don't think everybody in our real world does that. And it's something that I try and do, and maybe I don't always succeed, but I, you know, I, I'm trying to teach my son how to, you know, he's a teenager. And so teenagers can think in pretty absolute terms. And I'm trying to tell him, look, you know, cut yourself some slack, cut other people some slack, recognize when people are cutting you some slack, you know, pay it back um, and just, just forgive where you can forgive because so much of, you know, our, well, our world has always been just blaming others for different things that they can control or they can't. And so, yeah, Belisarius has got a, yeah, that's, that's me talking to my boy sort of thing going on there. Makes sense. Hmm. So um, I, I just was reminded when we were talking about St. Like the, the, the AI of St. Matthew and all that. So I guess, um, this would follow the the usual heist type of uh, a characterization where you got like the – so is, I guess the AI is the kooky sort of very idiosyncratic uh, heist member. Where do everyone else fall? Like um, what archetypes do they fill? Uh, I don't know if they fill personality archetypes so to speak because I mean you can look at – you know, the ocean series, you can look at the sting, you can look at, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, Locke Lamora and stuff like that. Um, there's, there's lots of different ways that people have done this, but just the idea of there's a gang that has got to be pulled together. And each one of them has some personality that is, 
you know, at odds with everybody else's, but that fits with what they're trying to do. And, you know, they're fun. And the whole idea of the heist gang is that they're a lot of fun to be around because in part they're outrageous, right? And uh, because nobody who's sane would do what they're going to try and do. So I, I went for an explosive expert that honestly was a bit modeled on that Muppet who likes to blow things up. Um, <laughs> and every so often when I thought, is this enough? I thought, what would the Muppet do? <laughs> you know, um, and, and, you know, stills with his, you know, middle finger up to the world and yet being this important pilot and, you know, the, the, the fall guys, you know, the two fall guys who, who have to be the, the sort of inside people. And then the AI of course is the, you know, the the electronics wizard and uh and then even cassandra i guess she's the navigator i describe her as the navigator but i and, and that's her job in the the heist but uh i don't think that fits into a sort of heist archetype but it did for this because you know we're we're dealing with a, a stellar geography that we have to that they're trying to get through right so well she yeah. she, she would be the getaway driver stills is the getaway driver though oh is she Okay. Because yeah, he, he runs away with one of the ships. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh I mean it's almost like she he's doing the getaway drive and she's she's driving the 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 vehicle that gets you to the back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm, okay. No, I mean we can we can cut this pie in a bunch of different ways. The pie will still taste good. <laughs> it's yeah. That is what matters. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, unless you're c- cutting it to the molecular level, so. Yeah. <laughs> I love apple pie. <laughs> Apropos of nothing, yes. Well, no, I was just thinking, how far down would you have to cut it until I couldn't taste the apple? And I well, think at the molecular level, we're losing something. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not entirely sure that uh, a taste bud could possibly pick up a molecule, but. All right, guys, 41 minutes in, we hit Zeno's paradox. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I haven't done that on a podcast before. <laughs> well, we, we like breaking new territory yeah, I here. I guess you do. Wow. Um, <laughs> we talked a little bit about authors you've read earlier. Are there are there people that you, you really think of as, as influences, either who have got you started or that you feel like on some level you model your work alongside? I, as a very early reader, I read comic books, which is of no use whatsoever for writing prose, like short stories or novels. So that was a wasted 15 years of reading. Um, <laughs> comic books, one of the ones I liked when I was a kid was John Carter of Mars. And, you know, the little asterisks in there, you know, they kind of say, like, you know, see last issue. At one of these asterisks, I saw Sea Princess of Mars. And I was like, what the heck is that? And so then I went back and, and found out it's a novel. And I picked up Princess of Mars and started reading Burroughs. And Burroughs is, you know, novels, but it's pulp. So that means it's also of no use to, you know, learning how to write short stories or good novels of today. Um, and so I don't know if these were influential or not. It, like I was led astray for a long time, but I mean, you get to your dunes and then at one point, maybe around 30, I think I was so frustrated with how slowly I was learning that I went and looked up all of the Nebula and Hugo nominees for, let's say the last 20 years. And I just went into a bookstore and I bought as many as I could. And that gave me a real diversity of, of experience. And I saw like, for example, I really liked the Uplift series. I liked some Poole Anderson. Um, and, uh, you know, as I, I think one of the things that gave me a lot of scope, not necessarily on on uh, space opera, but just on writing in general and sci-fi and fantasy was um, in the late 2000s, you know, before 2010, I started listening to Escape Pod and Podcastle, which are sure. podcast series that, you know, do one short story of about an hour per week and i was able to listen to about four or five hundred um in the course of over two years and it like taught me so much about the subgenres of science fiction and of you know fantasy and horror and other stuff and just seeing what different people would do with different themes and so on uh inspired a lot of some of my short fiction and then i think my short fiction later on became a kind of scaffold for what I would do with the novels. That's a cool answer. 
Yeah. I felt it was I have, meandering, but I appreciate the positive reinforcement. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I was going to ask you a question from the other, uh, sort of from the other end of the, the spectrum. Uh, amongst the stuff that you've read, were there any uh, stories, books, uh, authors that inspired you to say, you know what? That's a mistake. I don't want to do that in my writing. Or even better, you're wrong. Your story premise is wrong. I'm going to prove you wrong by writing another story that sort of countermands that. Yeah. So, I mean, getting back to the story Vacuum Diagrams by Stephen Baxter, like, I love the central idea. I love that Baxter was digging into what would quantum perceptions be like. But as I mentioned, I, I wasn't quite satisfied with it. And I felt there was so much more to it. That was an example but I once read or listened to um, a whole anthology of time travel stories. And one after the other was just so disappointing. Um, and it made me think, I'm going to write three time travel stories, one of which is going to involve science fiction where you travel forward in time, one of which is what science fiction around going backwards in time. And the third one would be what would happen if life colonized um, a time travel device. And so the one going forward in time became Schools of Clay, which was published in Asimov's. Um, and, and that has those skates that live around the, the pulsars that, you know, make a few appearances here and there in, uh, in the quantum series. And then the one who's going with the story going backwards in time became my novella, Pollen from a Future Harvest, which just which came out in 2015 from uh, Asimov's. And that's that's where that time travel device came from and the union and everything else and the political situation. Um, and yeah, so so, yes, there's both good sort of inspiration and kind of I wouldn't call it negative inspiration, but just you know, gauntlet throwing down inspiration, maybe. Yeah, I, I, we, I think we, we like to call it like, you know, never underestimate the power of spite. <laughs> Just be I like, so no, much. <laughs> you are wrong, sir, and I am going to prove you wrong, and I'm going to write 20,000 words about that. And it, that even if like it takes I, me two years, I'll get you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> maybe I'm too easy going to be a writer. That's... <laughs> well, you I mean... I was going to say, you got to want it bad. I mean, you. I sometimes run into people who are like, yeah, I think I would like to write a book someday. And I'm like, wow, if you haven't written it now, you know, maybe you don't want it that bad, right? Maybe it's like it's a whim, but I don't know. When I was nine or 10, uh, like I was automatically drawn to start writing it, it. It was just kind of overwhelming, you know, and and Carlo, you know, you said you came late to it, but you came to it and then you were there. Yeah, I mean, it, it it took me a while too, but you know, you get there, mm -hmm. um, and, and it's. I, I think the issue is that you know, like I summarized it with a friend of mine who was like feeling down. And I was like, you know, don't feel too bad. Um, and in the process of trying to cheer him up, I I actually got myself depressed because I was like, <laughs> well, you know, we we sort of work in in in, in sort of like in isolation for uh, sometimes. Uh, unknowable reward. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's you definitely don't want to have this conversation with an economist because, like, for a, I think for many authors out there that do great work, if they took the same number of hours and yeah. spent it on a paper route, but I mean that's 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 not why you're doing it. I mean, I I. At least that's not why you're doing it for me. You know? yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. Like, I understand that there is a value in in bettering yourself, like bettering your craft, like developing your craft and writing. There's nothing. There's no such thing as like wasted writing, even if you throw out like a whole, you know, thousand Novel. plus words or whatever. <laughs> you learn something from that. It's just not something that you can immediately turn into money. Yep. 100%. And 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 I think that when I started thinking of it from like a rational like stepped over the line into just pure rationality if you will, um, you know, like the economics rationality, it sort of looks totally irrational. Why would anyone do this? But yeah, yeah. you do it because you like to do it and it makes you f like you want to create and you want to like you know, 
I, I don't know about you, Derek, but as a, like I am an atheist as well. But even then, I'd like to think that I can create new worlds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is yeah. my way to do it. Yeah. No, we're writers because we have to be. So okay. Yeah. To do what we must. Yeah. Samurai writing. The editing is uh, is done by katana. <laughs> so that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. I what if uh, uh, I, this is probably a good time? How do I so so Derek? Let's just say I I listened to this episode and I was really interested in what I heard about uh, quantum magician and uh, the sticks. What would I? How would I read more of your stuff? What's the path to success here? Uh, you can certainly start with quantum magician and quantum garden. Each of them are standalone novels that. Um, yet they are in a series, um, and and uh, House of it's it, the Quantum Evolution series is eventually going to be four books. Um, I have contracts for all four, and um, I also sold my publisher a duology called um, uh, Venus Ascendant. I think we called it, um, and the first book is called The House of Sticks, and it came out just recently both in analog and now it's out in audio and an ebook. And uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, the the hardcover release was delayed to April, but um, that is its own standalone series as well. They can be read independently. And and that other one is that like the House of Sticks is a, a godfather story set in the clouds of Venus just before Venus becomes an empire. And uh, nice. yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And it's basically filled with my Quebecois relatives. So, <laughs> but, Excellent. but at the same time, um, I believe uh, a lot of my fiction as well, if you go to my website, like there's links to where it's been podcast or where it's available online. And my publisher just bought uh, a number of my short stories and I think they're going to put out a collection, but they haven't told me exactly when, how I think they're trying to figure out what goes best, but yeah. Excellent. Fantastic. But, Derek, uh, I've really enjoyed this interview, and I, I enjoyed Quantum Magician. Um, I guess my final question for you, though Carlo may have more, is if there's an appropriate time later, could we drag you back in? Oh, I had so much fun talking with you guys, honestly, and I, I miss seeing Carlo. <laughs> awesome. Well, actually, you'll be very welcome to our, our audience because we have figured out over time that about a third of our listeners are in Canada and a third of them are, are in New Orleans and we don't really know why. I, I'm, I'm related to all those because I am half Acadian. So there's the Acadian Quebecois and then there's the Acadians in Louisiana. Aha! Yep, yep. There you go. <laughs> and, and so there's the Axis Pete. <laughs> and, and those we are the found ones out, I put in my book. <laughs> we have found out the keystone to the to the coalition. Yeah, we, we figured, yeah, we, we, we've got the basis of an agreement between between the disparate parties that's wonderful <laughs> excellent all right um i i honestly i don't have anything other than you know hope we can get you back to talk about something uh soon Derek. this would be wonderful and uh you guys were so much fun oh thanks thanks again